Onassis Foundation. Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis LA and Dublab. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, everyone. My name is Sunita Puri, and I am a palliative care physician and a writer based in Los Angeles. I'm very honored to be hosting the quarantine tapes today with my special guest, Jonathan Hepfer. I'd like to thank Paul Holdengraber for this opportunity and would also like to thank the Onassis Foundation and Dub Lab for bringing us the quarantine tapes. Hi, Jonathan, how are you doing today? Hey there, Sunita, how are you doing? I'm good. How was today for you? It's been good. It's uh, it's the end of the year, and um, you kind of know when you check out to a certain extent. I'm still in Los Angeles, but um, I'm trying to get some things that are a little bit less, uh, you know, your day-to-day activities taken care of, and more like the wider, you know, wider lens life questions uh, settled. So I'm hoping to get some of that done by the end of the year. That sounds wonderful and very relatable. And we are recording today on the day of the winter solstice. So it's kind of an auspicious day for going inward and thinking about those bigger picture things that we all have to get our minds around at this time of year. I wanted to thank you for spending some time talking with me today and wanted to kind of share a story before we jump into this conversation. I was a very nerdy Indian kid growing up in the 1990s, and I was trained in classical piano. And I just remember the special community that I was part of when I would sit in an audience and listen to an orchestral performance. My preference was always to go see the piano concertos, but I eventually, you know, branched out from that. And it just was a place of watching precision, tradition, history, but also modernity kind of all come together. And it was a distinct space and place for me compared to any other space that I occupied. And when I saw you conduct a few weeks ago, the Media Vita and Tabula Rasa program at the First Congregational Church in Los Angeles, it was part of this very historic group that you lead or you know, tradition that you lead really called the Monday evening concerts. And it really took me back to being that young kid, this young daughter of immigrants who had never heard Western classical performed and feeling like I was part of something bigger, which is something I think we've lost during the pandemic. So I wanted to frame our conversation that way because what you did that night was very personal to me and touched me in a very deep way that brought forth tears that needed to be brought forth. So I wanted to kind of start by asking you what the Monday evening concerts are and what it means for you to be at the helm of them. First of all, thank you so much for that uh, really vivid description of, of the event. And I, I couldn't be happier that I made you cry. <laughs> Not I made you cry, but that the, the thing that 
in in a way I had spent a long time thinking about and planning uh, because to cry I think means it's significant to you and it's touching and it's impactful in a way that you know is deeply human and I think that one of the big challenges in running a contemporary music concert series is sort of getting through all of the layers of aesthetics and all of the you know sort of uh, dialogue that takes place through you know each generation that is asserting its uh, point of view um, you know the 30s were different than the 40s were different than the 50s and uh, you know and so on but I think that each generation brings something deeply human and my job as the director of the series is to try to get in touch with I th at least I think this is my job, <laughs> this is my own job description, is I think to get beyond the surface of the subject matter and get to the depth of the thing. And I've, I've realized recently that unexpected tears are maybe the highest response that I can hope to elicit from an audience member because it means that it, it doesn't come in a predictable way, it comes in a way that kind of levels you from a side that you perhaps haven't touched for a while or you didn't even know you had. Um, and I think that of all the things that music does for us, I, I want to say that that to me is primary. So to rewind to your actual um, question, uh, which again, that's an excellent question. You were talking about Monday evening concerts and the series has been around for I think 82 years. We're coming on 83, I believe, in in April. It was April 23rd, 1939, was the original, uh, the debut performance, which took place on Mikkelterena uh, in Silver Lake, in a Rudolf Schindler-designed home for the household of Peter Yates and Francis Mullen Yates. They were um, together a... Uh, he was, a, I think, primarily a social worker, and he was also a poet and music critic uh, for something that's now legendary called Arts and Architecture Magazine, it, which was a sort of survey of all the, you know, things like case study houses and a lot of contemporary aesthetics um, with respect to architecture, with painting, with uh, design, with everything from wallpaper to silverware to... Um, you know, these houses in the hills built by the Eameses and, you know, people like that. And his wife, Frances Mullen Yates, was this pianist who had a real appetite for challenge. And that would be sort of present in her interest in particularly the Ives Concord Sonata, Charles Ives's Concord Sonata, which is a major... I mean, that's an explosion in the pianistic repertoire if we're looking at the time period that it's coming from, where it's like, oh, you thought you knew what you were doing? Oh, here comes this piece. Uh, question everything. It, You know, it's like a Ulysses or a Finnegan's Wake or something like that that explodes the genre of, you know, novel. You know, in this case, it's the piano sonata that Ives is sort of exploding. So the original DNA of the series was things like uh, Bela Bartok's music and uh, Alexander Scriabin and uh, Arnold Schoenberg and eventually Igor Stravinsky came into the mix um, and so it was essentially a play, a meeting place for all of these well people who had arrived in Los Angeles by you know one mean or another and many of these folks were 
part of the sort of European intelligentsia that needed to escape Europe. Why? Because of the Second World War or the, you know, the impending doom of what was taking place in Europe. So a lot of these people were emigres that found themselves in this, like, you can imagine the sort of extreme foreignness of a place like Los Angeles at that moment in history where it's like, wow, like, what do we do with this, this new unexpected situation in life? If you're coming from Vienna or Berlin or Paris or Switzerland or, you know, um, really anywhere that was touched by the, that tragic era. So they found themselves here and, and many of them had come to play in Hollywood studios and uh, which meant they were tremendously gifted musicians and, and like really high octane, you know, top shelf classical musicians. But the majority of the, uh, you know, film scores that they were responsible for producing were not exactly, you know, rocket science for them. So they were looking for a place to really sink their teeth into something that gave themselves some sort of existential raison d'etre, you know, like, um, which I think a lot of performers of a certain ilk uh, just gravitate towards. Th these works have a certain magnetism that pull you in. And so that was kind of the original basis of what came together focused as Monday evening concerts. But I must emphasize also that there were a lot of different definitions of new. Um, I, I realized recently that I think the, the premiere of Beethoven's Fidelio um, was only given like 70 years ago in Los Angeles. It is crazy to think like, I mean, often my curatorial mind goes, oh, that's been done into the ground. And then I think to myself, well, has it been done in this city? And so Los Angeles is a really interesting place in, in that regard because I think a lot of things that one takes for granted if, if one, one aware of a sort of larger cultural picture, all of a sudden you, I had this with when we did uh, Steve Reich's Music for 18 Musicians a couple years ago. And, and I thought like, oh, you know, that piece is, it's such a masterpiece, but it's kind of common and you can hear it in a lot of different places. And then I, I started thinking about it and I was like, I don't think it's ever been done in Los Angeles by Los Angeles musicians. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think that we have certainly imported the piece, whether it be Steve Reich and musicians or the Bang on a Can Ensemble with Red Fish, Blue Fish, which I participated in some years ago. But I was like, why don't we build our own from scratch? So I think that there, it's an interesting job in all those respects. And I know I've already digressed <laughs> to a, a ridiculous degree, but... <laughs> Your digressions are always beautiful and they always kind of lead me to a question that I might not have considered before. And this, what you just said about the convergence of essentially musical refugees in Los Angeles, which is so in many ways kind of polar opposites from places like Austria and Germany. And they're here and they're forming this community and playing or performing pieces in a different place. What do you think is the relationship between place and performance? That's a really, really good question. Um, you know, I've, I've sort of often, for whatever reason, gravitated towards the, this analogy with um, fashion houses mm -hmm. over the course of the years. Like, you know, there are all these sort of um, 
fashion houses that were established whenever, you know, let's say the 19th century, and they get, or early 20th century, and they get passed down and they get new creative directors over the years. And uh, like Balenciaga is one, um, Saint Laurent is one, you know, Yves Saint Laurent does not run the company now. Um, so it, Louis Vuitton is a really good example, having uh, Virgil Abloh at the helm, um, tragically until recently. So I like the idea that this is like one of those maisons yeah. and it is, uh, so to rewind to your question, I, I think, um, you know, Virgil Abloh had Off-White and he had Louis Vuitton. And Raph Simmons has Raph Simmons as well as um, Prada in this case now. And I think that they design really differently, but in related ways, if they're designing for their, their own label or for a sort of maison that they're in uh, charge of. So Los Angeles is a really, really interesting uh, situation. I don't know how else to... It's, it's definitely not a problem, but it is a little bit of a puzzle to... Um, to you know, contemplate. So, you have um, on one hand this really interesting sort of eighty-two-year-old uh, thing, which has its own ethos, its own DNA, its own lineage. Um, and the, the other thing I, I was just going to mention, incidentally, was that n what is new to people comes in really different packages. So it's like new to whom, yeah. and. Uh, so part of the early DNA was, well, what is new music? Well, maybe Bela Bartok, Alexander Scriabin, um, uh, Igor Stravinsky, Arnold Schoenberg would all be uh, Charles Ives. But also they were doing early explorations into the early music movement, meaning works that come before Bach, which were basically unknown. And so, you know, you would have people copying out sort of uh, manuscripts by hand in order to find out how these old score, these ancient scores sounded. So all this is to say that like we're drawing from basically the entirety of Western music history and going, well, this it, Hildegard von Bingen's kind of new <laughs> in a sense. I mean, or it's new to me, it's new to a lot of people in the room. And um, so to, to get back to the, the point of how you design it differently. So I think if I had the, you know, Jonathan concert series, I might be inclined to make not radically, but like definitely different decisions than I make as the artistic director of Monday evening concerts. And I think that one of the things I've found is in the very beginning of directing the series, I felt like I was very much beholden to preserving the image mm -hmm. and preserving this lineage, which I, I still do feel that way. But I also see it as um, like a, a governing principle would ma uh, be what Gustav Mahler said, which is that tradition isn't the worship of ash ashes, but rather the preservation of flame. And so if one takes the preservation of flame as the model, then it means that to evolve a particular thing means to just be aware of your current uh, moment in time, your current situation, and adapt and sort of use your point of view as intelligently as you can to steer the ship in an interesting direction. So in my case, uh, coming into Monday evening concerts, I'm from Buffalo. Um, I sort of grew up in, uh, my parents were librarians at SUNY Buffalo. And I 
sort of wandered into this environment that was post the Creative Associates at the Center for Creative Associates at SUNY Buffalo, which is this really, really storied thing that included, you know, it was a sort of center established by the Rockefellers that included um, positions for, I mean, Lucas Foss was the director, Morton Feldman was sort of the main composer figure, but Julius Eastman was, was there, Silvana Buzzotti, um, uh, just Marianne Amache, like a real sort of who's who, George Crumb, uh, a real who's who of the moment. And then coming out of that environment, I transferred to Oberlin, then I went to UC San Diego, then I went to the Musikhochschule Freiburg, then I came back to UC San Diego. And at some point when I was in California, somebody said, do you know this series in Los Angeles called Monday Evening Concerts? And to be honest with you, I had no interest in the in California, sort of just in my own life, it had never occurred to me that California would be a, a place that I could see myself uh, settling down. I thought I was going to UC San Diego for a couple years to study with a really uh, special mentor, Stephen Schick. But eventually what I found was that this series, uh, I finally, you know, was intrigued enough to make the trip up from San Diego. And I thought to myself, to be honest with you, I, I hate almost everything. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I, I, I feel sort of out of place in a lot of different uh, concert settings. But this concert series had um, new, it was works by Vinko Globokar and um, Keiko Harada and uh, Luciano Berrio combined with music of the Ars um, Subtilior, which is like, I don't know, 14th century music or something like that. And I'm just sitting there in the audience like, wait, how am I here? How does this exist? Like, why does this exist? Why is this the best thing I've sat through in a, an exceptionally long time? So I was really, really puzzled by what I was seeing, but in a really profoundly great way. And I decided, oh, this is onto something. So I would come back and I got to know the director and I just sort of started saying, do you know this piece? I mean, that program was so great, but do you know this piece? Do you know that piece? Do you know? um, and he would listen to the things I was suggesting to him, and sooner or later we sort of became collaborators. So all of this is to say, when I actually moved to Los Angeles, it was the first time that I was outside of an academic community in a very, very long time. So I found myself like newly sort of... Um, like all of my cords to my comfort zone were being cut and I just found myself I was newly single in a city um, that I didn't know at all so all of my relationships uh, friendships uh, professional relationships all of it was being developed from scratch and I just found myself I wandered into what I, I can only term the LA creative community and it was a lot of people, um, I, I couldn't tell you anything about like academic pedigrees. I, I think that many of these folks um, haven't had that path, but they're nonetheless like these unbelievably intelligent, uh, highly, highly accomplished young individuals who are driven to do something really interesting with their sensibilities. And so as I became friends with these folks, I started not insisting on my own point of view, but I rather started really listening to their point of view. You know, what does contemporary music look like to some, what does classical music look like to members of this community? You know, it, it's been interesting because 
when I was 19, I had um, discovered Philip Glass and I, I was like, oh, I really like this. And then part of me was like, yeah, but this is too easy and too likable. And you need to focus on the hardcore <laughs> modernity. And, and then I saw this community that uh, really responded to Glass or really responded to Harold Budd's music or Brian Eno's or a lot of different folks whose music I hadn't really from my sort of hardcore academic training been in, in constant contact with. So it, in a way, like the person I had becoming, been becoming for the last 15 years and the new situation of like, well, I really care about these people and I respect these people and I want, I, it, it's really nice when they come to the concert. And so I learned how to sort of remove my, like all I would care about before is um, impressing like a Harvard seminar classroom or the, you know, the constituency at the Darmstadt or Donaueschingen festivals, which is to say all people who are kind of on the inside of the metier. And here I was like, okay, what if we don't, um, what if we keep all of that, but we somehow bring this into dialogue with music that this other community seems to resonate with? And what happens there, and it, what happened was a really interesting sort of alchemical thing where two sort of unquestioned things, or perhaps that's a, an uninformed way to describe it, but two things that seem to exist as siloed um, you know, communities all of a sudden came into the same space. And because we had been establishing this sort of platform that engendered trust, you know, it meant that the people who came from one perspective were all of a sudden going like, hmm, what was that other thing? I really liked that. Or people who were really um, the hardcore, you know, people with similar backgrounds to me might go, yeah, I haven't thought about that music in a long time, but it's really good. Yep. And that's kind of, you know, it sounds like in many ways your coming to Los Angeles was similar to those who came from Europe in troubled times to create their own community and that you were really kind of in a parallel position, but that you were also really open to who inhabits Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. What do they make of classical music? What would it mean for you to engage in that marriage of history and the modern moment, which I think from what I know and from what I've experienced has been sometimes a struggle for classical music. You hear about things like audiences tending to be very monolithic, tending to come from similar backgrounds, and the very virtuous attempts of those within the classical music community to make it more accessible to a diverse audience. And diversity meaning not just, you know, age and ethnic background, but musical tastes, right? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's what, when you talk about alchemy and evolution, I think evolution very much begins with listening. Mm -hmm healing out the surroundings around you so that no matter where you're coming from in terms of place and perspective on music, you kind of become porous to the place and perspectives that other people have on classical music and its place in music generally. And that's really, it sounds like the way that you lead an institution that's a marriage of the past and the present. And a question that comes to mind is, what has your experience been of trying to make classical music 
more accessible and more exciting to audiences that may not feel they have a place in that audience? Well, uh, that's a really, really great question. Um, you know, in the very beginning, uh, in some ways, the, at least for the branch of contemporary music that I felt really close to, it was almost like a badge of honor <laughs> when you would give uh, performances and there would be like five people in the room. Oh, interesting. And, and, and you'd, you'd go like, I, I remember my first doctoral recital at, um, at UC San Diego, I played a portrait concert of the, the solo percussion works of um, Pierluigi Bilone and Klaus Stefan Mankopf. <laughs> if, if, for, for those contemporary music heads in the room, if you don't know those people, then think like Helmut Lachemann and think um, Luigi Nono, Salvatore Sharino and their progeny. So um, I was sort of like working at like a certain, let's say the end game of a certain aesthetic project. And I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. Um, <laughs> But like 10 people showed up to the recital and, and I was like, yeah, that seems about right. Um, this, is, this is the life that I'm in for. And I'd gone to so many programs like that over the course of my own life where I, I just remember, you know, you described your early experiences in a concert hall so vividly, but I didn't grow up with classical music at all. Like I really kind of detested it in, in a way. And so for me, um, I remember for, for me, the sort of eureka moment was seeing John Cage's Third Construction. It was John Cage's piece, The Third Construction for Four Percussionists. And me just sitting there going like, what am I seeing? This is, it, this is unreal. And, um, but I, you know, we were probably like 10 people in that audience. And just me going like, wow, I, I feel so bad for everybody not in this room. So I had that approach when I came to Los Angeles, where I was like, well, there aren't supposed to be a lot of people in the room. And historically, whenever I had shared my viewpoint with friends, you know, the, the things that I was into with friends, they would sort of be interested from a distance, but not to the extent that they would be willing to, you know, put on a pair of trousers and leave their apartment and come, <laughs> come to the thing that, uh, that I was presenting. So I was like, well, they're supportive nonetheless and I'm, I'm grateful for them but like you can't expect a person to go out of their way to come to your concert like I just thought that that was a given and so when I got to Los Angeles I really concealed what I did and I didn't share that part of me with with very many people because I thought like oh these people want to go to a club and listen to like trap uh, music or new order um, and and frankly, I did too, <laughs> you know, so, so I was like, cool, we're in, we're in our respective comfort zones. Um, let's not ruin this by bringing up uh, late works of Anton Webern or, <laughs> you know, like I, I used to joke that after in the latter stages of my doctorate, I, I would need one of those like dog shock collars for every time I brought up um, Heidegger in casual conversation. And, and, you know, it was like you would w watch the eyes glaze over in three, two, one, and we're done. <laughs> I, have n I actually have never met anybody who brings up Heidegger in casual conversation. So you <laughs> from now on for that. Well, yeah, I, I, what I soon found was that you didn't like exactly, you wouldn't become the bell of the ball by, uh, you know, quoting obscure passages of Deleuze or something. So... 
So what I decided to do was, oh, well, just keep that side of you pretty private and um, just sort of, you know, like have a good time socially and, and not alienate anybody by talking about things that would be not of shared interest. So I really kept what I did quite quiet. And um, but a, a couple friends were like, so what do you do again? And and I was like, well, I, I sort of run this concert series, but um, you, you don't need to worry about it. You, you won't like it. You've never, I, if I even began to explain it to you, like you wouldn't get it. And um, like, you know, it's just better you stay at home. And they go, no, 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 we want to come. And so I was like three, four friends. Um, and I was like, okay, fine. You guys are like real friends. You can come. And I know you won't judge me, but like just know that I know it's like, abstract and it's not I know what it's not and I really love it but like I don't expect anybody else to share my viewpoint and how um, interesting that it was almost sounded like shameful that you it was very shameful <laughs> it's secret and I think back to you know the eras of you know, people like Mozart who I love right I'm so stereotypical I just love him um and in his day was he shamed of what he was doing when it was new and different? And yet this, I wonder, are there any parallels there? Because number one, it kind of makes me sad to feel like you had to hide it. And number two, I wonder if any part of why you felt you need to hide it is because people are more used to Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, these big well-known names and well-known works. Well, it's a really, really interesting question because now that I am this far deep in on my path, at a certain point I took pains because in the beginning I thought uh, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, uh, Schubert were just put on this planet to give me failing grades in music theory courses. <laughs> and, and so I was so resentful. I was like, why would any, how does this, how does this relate to anybody's life? I, I mean, like, excuse me, it's 2001 right now. <laughs> this, is, this is me in the very beginning of my journey. But I was like, how does any of this matter to anybody's life in 2001? I, I was coming from, you know, Sex Pistols and Nirvana and, uh, and things that kind of had that energy to it. And I was like, John Cage resonates with me because I like all of this stuff. And somehow the punk ethos I could find, I was like, wow, this is really philosophical punk. And, and I was like, wow, this is this combines a lot of interest, visual art, um, D.T. Suzuki and Zen uh, Buddhism and uh, Robert Rauschenberg and Gertrude Stein and like all these things found their way into Cage's work. But, you know, I, I just didn't expect anybody to share those those viewpoints. So I think that I I, I just had a sort of well, and, and also there is what and and I take this with a grain of salt. If you're uh, you know a very deeply committed hardcore new music musician uh, like me, but like there is a sort of common sense to what music means to people. Yes. I mean, like it's it's not sacrilege to say that that includes melody and and some version of tonal harmony. So you know, through the vast majority of history, those have been like the you know, clarion calls of what defines music and all of this sort of more philosophical stuff. Um, one could begin with like, I don't know, Varese's music or 
probably sati would be like an interesting sort of philosophical departure let's say from a pre-existing uh, long tradition and you know he's kind of coming out of alfajari in the surrealists and so when john cage arrives at four minutes 33 seconds i think I think that to me automatically that made sense and I think it made sense to almost nobody but me <laughs> in my life. So I was waiting to find that community and and eventually I did find them and and so I didn't once I did find them you, you know I latched onto that community and then I stopped talking to all the people who didn't <laughs> which wow. is equally bad. You know so so here I found myself like okay I'm secure in my own point of view but I'm meeting all these people that I don't quite know how to explain what I do. And therefore, I was thinking, okay, one of the big, uh, one of the primary new missions will be to figure out how to actually communicate this music. Because what I found was those friends that I invited, um, afterwards, you know, I'm sort of like sh hanging my head in shame and saying like, okay, you guys can go home now. Uh, thank you very much. That was a really nice thing you did uh, coming to support me but now you know and we can move on and the next day i got these texts and phone calls from these people saying like i couldn't sleep last night because that thing was so powerful and i actually one of the people told me she had nightmares but <laughs> well a reaction nonetheless right any yeah. sort of visceral and certainly any dreamlike reaction it made an impact it made a serious impression on people who we're probably walking in based on what you told them thinking, oh my God, how fast is this program going to be over? Yeah. That is, I think, one of the most amazing things about music is that, and you can look at, you can say the same thing for other art forms, like a book, for example, you're reading a beautiful book. It's an individual experience, but it's something that is shared too, because the book is out in the world. You're sitting in a concert hall and you're having an experience that's distinct from reading a book on your own. You're, you're witnessing the creation or recreation of something that was written however long ago, whether it was yesterday or you know, five centuries ago, and you're experiencing it individually, but you're experiencing it also with all the emotions around you. Mm -hmm. And in the pandemic, if you think about the individual meaning of just hearing it and experiencing it yourself, but the shades of meaning that can be part of watching a concert that have to do with everyone else around you. And that was suddenly gone. You know, um, just just by the way, uh, and I'm sorry if I'm cutting you off, but uh, I read Calvin Tompkins' book on Marcel Duchamp over the pandemic, and one of the lines that I really loved was that he said that the title of a work is an invisible color in the painting, and I think that the audience is an invisible note in the performance. No, I think that's so beautiful because, you know, when I was thinking about the question, I was thinking so much about this moment that we're in, a fracture and, you know, kind of dispersal where we're not all together as a community. And the specific sort of healing that I had in mind about this moment really kind of transcends this moment. Mm -hmm because we don't need a pandemic to feel dispersed and alone. We don't need a pandemic to feel like something is deeply broken inside us that needs a touch. Mm -hmm. 
first part of healing. And something that came to mind was there's a pianist, Igor Levitt, who's a German pianist who I admire very much, who started this basically just taping himself and broadcasting, playing from his living room, playing his piano um, for people who wanted to hear it. Mm -hmm. And even when it was out of tune, he was there playing just so many incredibly beautiful pieces. And something he said about that was just the fact that there was music, no matter how it sounded, just the fact that there was some kind of togetherness, just this was enough for people to feel better. It was enough for me to feel better. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing him say that and thinking about that last part of the sentence. It was enough for him to feel better too. Mm-hmm. And I think so much of what I read early on in the pandemic about like the Metropolitan Opera closing down, about a number of symphonies shuttering for the season, about people being let go, the pain of the people who are doing the performing that can enable us to find some sort of healing that's the last thing that I wanted to ask you about is what it felt like and what the experience was of being someone who wanted very much to offer these things to the world, mm-hmm. knowing their potency and feeling like you couldn't do that at an important moment in history. Well, uh, the last concert that we gave directly preceding the uh, the you know, March of 2020 was in February, and it was that uh, John Cage speech and Eve Klein monotone symphony. And the Eve Klein monotone symphony, which I was interested in parenthetically because uh, I was, I I had interviewed Eliane Radig, who was a friend of Eve's when he was a teenager, when, when I think he was maybe in his 20s and she was a teenager. So I was thinking, like, that's a really, really interesting piece. You know, it comes before John Cage's 4 minutes 33 seconds, but it's literally just 20 minutes of a D major chord followed by 20 minutes of silence. And and the piece was analogous to, it, it was like the, in my opinion, perfect musical analog to his paintings, which were the blue monochromes, which was then followed by the void. Um, so. If if you don't know uh, your your Eve Klein history, uh, forgive me for <laughs> for going that deep. But but I was thinking like, wow, the the amount of risk that you feel as the presenter of that piece, which is to say, you're literally asking people to sit down for forty minutes to listen to a single D major chord, followed by twenty minutes of silence, and we did that with hundred fifty people. Um, at LAX Art, and that was a program that I was delighted to co-curate with my colleague Hamza Walker. And what I realized was I really need to know what I'm doing if <laughs> if I'm going to present this work, because I need to feel that I'm somehow worthy of presenting that and I am knowledgeable enough. Um, because So all this is to say that I really tried to get to the essence of what Eve, what I felt Eve Klein was doing. And one of the points that he was making was that if you look at the history of, of you know, painting, you, I don't know, you have the paintings of the bisons and caves in Lascaux and Chauvet, and then, you know, you have, like, 
many steps that I'm less aware of, but eventually you get to, you know, Car Leonardo and Caravaggio and Titian and Michelangelo. And uh, then eventually you get to, I don't know, Cezanne and Monet and, and, you know, folks like that. And you get to the project of abstraction. And then through this process of abstraction, you he winds up at the monochrome, which were several different shades of uh, solid colored canvas. Eventually, he reduces that single blue, international Klein blue, IKB. Then he reduces the single color to <laughs> a void, like a, you know, an empty frame. Oh. And what, what his theory was, was that in each one, each one of those instances in history, what you have is an artist who's trying to do something to a surface. That surface then is, you know, um, I think the term he uses is impregnated with the energy of the artist, and then it remains there for others to absorb. And so regardless of what is being painted, that is the energy transfer, is that uh, an artist sort of says, we, uh, this, this is the shape that this will take, and then the viewer completes, as Marcel Duchamp says, uh, the, the audience completes the work. So Igor Levitt had one of the, you know, he, he was a major figure in the, in the pandemic. I tried to do that myself, um, but my downstairs neighbor started complaining and my landlord threatened to evict me. <laughs> so I, I've been creating these vibraphone, uh, you know, little vibraphone videos um, that people seem to appreciate and then they disappeared and, and, you know, people were asking why and the reason is because not, uh, not everybody had the circumstances because my studio was closed and that, you know, it's just, so I decided that the best thing I could do with my time was to use my sensibility, my sort of curatorial point of view or intelligence, if you like, to essentially create a blog. And my sort of artworks were this blog. And, and you know, it's as simple as in a, in a certain sense, it was like a collage artist who's just collaging a new thing every day. And, and I always meant for people to read it as this string of things where, like, if you're following the blog, then all of a sudden you're going, well, what does that have to do with that and that and that and that? And all of a sudden your, you know, your intelligence fills in those gaps for you. And that deals with the surface of a work versus the de the substance of a work. So I, I think that that everybody had their version of self-healing and how the self-healing might thereby <laughs> heal others. And I think we were all trying to figure out the most sincere way of doing that because we were all navigating that ver on a deeply personal level, but also trying to use that deeply personal search to positively impact the lives of others. And I think with everything that you're doing with the MEC, with you know, everything that you've done in the past, the posts that you've put on your blog, which I've gone through and thought were incredible. Each one of the things that artists offer is a gift in and of itself. And I just want to thank you for all of the gifts you've given the world during this time and before this time and for giving me what you did during that concert. So thank you so much for spending time talking with me, Jonathan. This has been fantastic. It's my great pleasure, and thank you for tolerating all the digressions. <laughs> digressions. I mean, what's a conversation but digressions? So. <laughs>
Well, thank you so much. It means the world to me that I was able uh, to, in some small way, play a, a role in something that positive that impacted your life. And that was the, I must emphasize, the result of the effort of many very, very exceptional people. So I, I'm happy to be here taking some of the credit on behalf of everybody. So, uh, but everybody really does deserve the credit who participated in that. And, I'm, and you are included as the audience member. <laughs> That's right, right? Based on what we talked about. Well, I hope this won't be the last time we talk, Jonathan, and I wish you a very happy holiday season. You as well. This was fantastic. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support. 